and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcast. In this episode, we will be talking about coaching, depth, attunement, and essentially unfolding transformative relationships. I'm delighted to welcome Steve Marsh, the founder of Aletheia Coaching. Steve, welcome to the show. It's nice to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. It's nice to have you. Thank you. Steve, you've created, uh, I'm going to call it an integrated ecology of uh, coaching practice which for me is a sort of paradigm-shifting, next-generation style of coaching uh, that you've called Aletheia. And in this methodology, you integrate teachings from various traditions and models and disciplines and philosophies, but also you make them accessible to people, but you also allow them to be layered and to enrich each other in a more holistic um, system, if you like, as as new possibilities unfold. Mm. And for me, it definitely opens this realm of possibilities of deepening conversations, so conversations both with ourselves but also with others. And um, I would like to start with your quote, which was what first got me interested in your methodology. When you say, you know, methodology to coaches is what paint and canvas are to artists. So, Mm. you know, powerful coaching isn't about a paint by numbers. And I love that statement. It's not a painting by numbers exercise, but like a great work of art, a great coaching conversation reveals a profound wonder of being human. And through this, the world is forever changed, you say. And I think in the digital world, it's really about, being human and you know you set up Aletheia in 2013 and you for me you know you had to look at what was missing from each individual methodology with its own constraints and limits and you created a more holistic integrated method essentially to face the unprecedented, unprecedented challenges we're all facing yeah and this was pre-COVID of course but even more so after COVID around uncertainty and interconnectedness and being human but leveraging the collective creative intelligence if you like and upskilling ourselves for the future whatever that future is Mm. so you know for me coaching has changed massively over the last five years with the digital platforms and um, and I think we start to see a democratization of access to basic coaching skills which I think is a great thing because uh, and it's part of my quest but but I also think that's how you make sustainable changes to create different dialogues and and uh, you know changing the conversation whether it's in communities or families or organizations or but here I'm particularly talking about organizations so can you tell us about what inspired you to set up your own method Aletheia of coaching and you know how you see the future of coaching in inverted commas Mm, yeah yeah well thank you for inviting me to be here and I mean what inspired me to to create Aletheia to be honest with you Aletheia well it's it's almost cliche to say it in the Aletheia space, but it unfolded for me <laughs> because, of course, this is a methodology yeah. of unfoldment. Yeah. And, you know, so I started coaching uh, around the year 2000. And mm. like many coaches, I got certified and trained in a, in a methodology, you know, one of the more recognizable methodologies at the time. And and it was it was good. And, and I felt like I needed to know more. I needed mm. to know, to learn more. And so like many coaches, I spent the most of the next 10 years taking training after training and learning different approaches to not only coaching, but psychotherapy and, uh, and depth work and, and somatic work, et cetera. And I started to realize that they're all, they all work. And Mm. that was initially surprising to me because they were all so different. Yeah. And I sat with a lot for a long time with probably two or three years with this question of like, what explains that? Like, Mm. Because I also noticed that not only did they all work, but they all failed to work. Yeah, and I wonder, like, like, so, so why did they work? Why did they, why did they not work? 
Why are they all so different? And I started to realize they all work and they all work at a different depth. Mm. And that when a coach meets a client at the depth that the client is, is living at in that moment, then uh, methodologies that specialize in that depth are very skillful and very workable. Except if they meet them with a methodology that specializes at a different depth, it's a, it's a, it's a clash. It doesn't fit. It doesn't mm. work. And the mm. method will fail. And so I started to wonder, you know, could there be a method that worked at all depths and fluidly moved up and down between them? And that's essentially, that was kind of like the root insight that began to unfold and had sort of unfold into the Aletheia method, mm. which was inspired by a variety of different methods that I had learned. And yet really isn't any of them directly because they, they had to be modified and adapted in a certain way to it to be integrated with each other mm. and so that began to form something which is now i think its own tradition you know with clear lines of inspiration back into the history of you know of coaching and the history of psychotherapy and, mm. and just the different ways that human beings have learned to, to help each other but it's now it's it's now its own tradition um with its own view of what a human being is and how to help how to help people to grow mm, yeah I mean, I think the depth part, which will come to a little bit later on, but I like the integration. I like the way you just you described the fluid movement between the different levels of depth, because when I said before, you, you make it very accessible to people. You also make it very impactful because with, let's say, a sort of superficial understanding of the depth model, you can actually have changed the way you have conversations and get a very powerful result without necessarily reading lots and lots of theories and understanding how they integrate because you're taught how they integrate and you're taught also, which, you know, is a challenge, I think, in organisations. And it was definitely a challenge for me to step back and just let go and let yeah. things unfold and trust the, the process in a way. Um, and I mean, which brings me to the principle of attunement and, and the core principle of like poetic and technical attunement, yeah. which is for me the start of understanding this fluidity between depths. Can, can you take us through technical and poetic attunement? Yeah. The big distinction that I make in, in my work is between self-improvement and self-unfoldment. Yeah. And this attunement that you're talking about is really the pivotal thing that it's sort of the key to being able to shift from mm. one mode to the other. Mm. So let me just describe, describe this. So uh, self-improvement really is the is the paradigm that prevails in our culture worldwide. Mm. Mm. And the urge to to improve ourselves, the intention to improve ourselves is a really good one, right? It's a noble mm. intention. Who doesn't want to, you know, be better at their job, be a better communicator, be a better speaker, be a better mm. listener, be a better partner, right? And be a better friend, you know, be a you know, be a better whatever, be a better leader, right? Mm. So I think that that many of us want to be to feel competent, to feel skillful. All that is really great. But very often a, a journey of self-improvement starts instead with a feeling of deficiency. Yeah. Like I don't have what it takes. I I don't have enough. I'm not enough. And of course, that feeling of I'm not enough is is also something that prevails in our culture. Yeah. And it's even something marketed to us. Yes, where, I was just going to say. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's like all behind every marketing mm. is that you're lacking something. And, and if you will just buy what we're offering, you won't lack that anymore. Mm. And 
what I've noticed as be, in being a coach and, and trying to help people through this self-improvement journey is that any kind of bumpiness that they experience along the road, little setbacks or surprises or, or moments of not knowing what to do, very often just reinforce that sense that they don't have what it takes. Yeah. You know, my, my simple example of this is just the failure of New Year's resolutions. <laughs> you know, every New Year's, we set up a good, a good new intention you know, to lose weight or to exercise more mm. or something like that. And, and maybe we're good for a week or maybe two weeks. And then something happens to knock us off of that. And then very, very quickly thereafter, the whole thing falls apart. Mm. And that's what I just saw with my clients again and again and again, that this whole self-improvement sort of mode was well-intended, but just didn't really work. Mm. So I started to work with a different paradigm called self-unfoldment. And the premise, it, 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 there's a different starting premise. The premise is, what if nothing is missing? And I don't mean that in a naive way. Like, of course, of course, there are lots of skills that I don't have mm. that, that, are, that are legitimately missing in me, and I mm. could develop them. But the whole idea is that I like to provocatively ask, what if nothing is missing? And the idea behind that is, what if you're already a whole human being? Yeah, which is a thought and, not many people have. I mean, right. you know, it's, it's when you have to repeat two or three times, think, oh yeah, what what if I'm whole already? <laughs> what if I'm whole already? That's exactly right. And it it's such a contrast to I'm not enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so from the beginning, we start with what if I am enough? Now, in being enough, I can actually go forth and I can set up, set up on a learning journey or developmental journey. And yes, I can experience setbacks, but you know what? I'm enough to handle those setbacks. Those, those setbacks, those bumps along the road that I might encounter aren't evidence that I'm not enough. They're just things I have to deal with. They're things mm. I have to work through, mm. right? And in fact, they're things that show me as I work through them that I actually am enough. So as I work through those, I continue to confirm, oh, I am enough. Look, I just worked through that right? Here comes the next setback. Mm. Well, let's work through that. Oh, I got through that. I must be enough, right? So mm. what we try to do is we try to get an entirely different sort of momentum that's building in self-unfoldment. Mm. And what we do in self-unfoldment is actually, it's actually a journey of self-discovery. It's yeah. a keep, keep learning that there is a whole human being here that is innately resourced, who is creative and and yes, who, when confronted with lack of skill or competence, just opens to that and says, oh, look, here's something I don't know how to do yet. Mm. And I can learn that, right? Mm. And so mm. I can move off and I can learn that. And yes, of course, there's going to be mistakes made and, and setbacks and surprises and things like that. But none of that confirms this, this sense of not enoughness, right? Mm. Mm. So the thing you're asking about of, of this attunement, what I noticed is like, how do we shift from being in the self-improvement mode to being in the self-unfoldment mode? Mm. And one of the inspirations for me is the philosophy of Martin Heidegger, who mm. was a continental philosopher mm. last century. He, in the 1930s and 40s, he was writing about what he was observing happening in the culture. Now, he was living and, and writing in rural Germany mm -hmm. uh, around a lot of farmers. Mm. and. He was noticing that that the slow technologizing of farm of farm work, that technology was coming in more and more and more. 
And he being really sensitive to this was noticing that, that what was happening was technology was beginning to sort of colonize everything. And I think were he alive today, he would see that his concern back in the 30s and 40s of the last century has really come to pass that yeah. we live in a technology. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look at even our conversation here. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're on different continents and we're yeah. talking and having this, mm. this conversation. So the thing that he got concerned about wasn't that wasn't really the technology was inherently bad, but it, that, that it was that this view of technology was beginning to overtake and overtake the view of, of being human. And we were starting to see ourselves and each other as human beings in technological terms. And that's very much what's at at play in the self-improvement paradigm. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to always upgrade or up-level. You know, I want Steve Steve 2.0, right? How do I build my skills so that I'm no longer broken, Mm -hmm. right? Because technology can break. We all know Mm -hmm. our cars Mm -hmm. break, our computers Mm -hmm. break. You know, I don't want to be broken and I want to be capable, right? Mm. And so we started to view ourselves and value ourselves in technological terms. Mm. And the cost of that is is quite literally our humanity. I was going to say the cost is human, of course. Right, right. So that's a technological way of attuning to the world. And Heidegger proposed a a way of addressing that. Mm. And what he talked about was that we could attune to the world in a different way, mm. could begin to attune to the world in more of a poetic way. And so his, his answer to what is it that reveals humanity and humanness mm. and human virtue is seeing ourselves as, as poetry. And so this shift, so when I sit down with a coaching client, um, really what I'm doing is I'm not sitting there viewing them from inside this technological view where they're broken or not enough or incapable. Mm. Instead, I'm viewing them as poetry and I invite them to view themselves as poetry. And so we start to ask, so what are you feeling? What are you Mm. sensing in your body? What's actually here right now? What's happening in your life? And when we attune in this more poetic way, we naturally start to create the conditions that foster a kind of deepening self-discovery and self-unfoldment. Mm. So it's really shifting gears into mm. that. Which is um, a big but, ask, isn't it? Particularly if, you know, in organizations, for me, the whole system is built on what we what you're calling technological attunement. So the performance systems, the perform, even the definition of coaching, you're either right. having executive coaching because you're high potential and they want you to get better or you're a low performer, so therefore you need coaching. I mean, I'm being very black and white, but that's essentially what I've experienced and seen in organizations and what I continue to see. But I am seeing a shift post-COVID. Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole idea of asking somebody to see themselves as poetry, how do you see them reacting to that? I mean, on a one-to-one coaching client basis, it can probably be quite powerful quite quickly. But if I put it back into the organizational context... How can you see that helping organizations, Steve? Well, here's the the, the curious irony in the midst of this is that <laughs> is that when we see each other as technology and we set off on these self-improvement projects, very often the results we get are very mixed. You know, mm. when we're trying to improve or tra- trying to change ourselves, very often we activate inner inner forces of resistance to those changes. You know, I mean the classical and maybe overly simplified, but losing weight kind of option. Mm. It's like 
you know, yeah, there's a part of you that wants to, to lose, to lose some weight. And then there's another part of you that wants to enjoy life and eat the foods that you, that, that bring you, bring you joy and happiness, right? Very often those kinds of projects don't really turn out, although they're well-intended. And so when we actually shift gears into self-unfoldment, we're not activating all that inner resistance and the learning and the development flows much more naturally. And so ironically, there's actually an improvement to performance. There's an yes. improvement to learning and development because we're actually recognizing our humanity and it, we're, we're integrating our humanity into that. Mm. That does have a tangible effect when a person goes back into the office space and you know they're leading, they're managing, they're relating to other people. They actually are, are better leaders, better managers as a result of that. Mm. Whereas when they tried to become better leaders and better managers in this self-improvement style and, you know, um, which is often driven by assessments, right? We assess, we find the gap, we try to close the gap, right? Intention, great. Effect, usually it it evokes resistance. I mean, how many of us, when we find out we're being assessed, we go, yay, I'm I'm really enjoying this, right? (laughs) Like mostly we're on edge, we're feeling anxious, like, oh, I'm being assessed, you know, mm-hmm. here's the gap I have. Oh my gosh, you know, like it triggers so many emotions inside of us and and so many defenses. Very often we we feel assessed and <clears throat> we look at the assessment and we say, okay, well, yeah, but that's not me even. No. Like I don't even feel seen by the assessment. Yeah. I was just gonna say right. we're being asked to fit in, aren't we? So then we're we're going back to the mask wearing of okay, I need to fit into this and not belong. Which, yeah. which isn't about self-enfoldment or depth, is it? It's about fitting into a paradigm that you don't really feel comfortable in. So, And that's going to activate yeah. natural resistances yeah. to that, you know? Yeah. And so instead, if we shift gears into saying, well, you know, what if you're already whole? What if you're poetry? You know, let's go on a journey of self-discovery. Let's discover your innate resources. Let's discover your creativity. Let's integrate that into your life. Let's actually relate to you as a human being, help you to relate to yourself as a Mm. human being instead Mm. of as technology. And guess what happens? What unfolds is a more human-centered leader, a more human-centered parent, a more human-centered partner, a more human-centered manager. And that actually produces better performance in the end. So there's this curious irony in the midst of this that, Mm. that, yeah, initially, like if, if I go you know, I usually don't talk in, 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 in these terms of if I'm going to go into an organization yeah, and talk about this kind of work, the way that I'll talk about it is I'll say that actually self-unfoldment is an approach to navigating complexity mm. because no one disagrees that the world that we live in is complex by nature. No. Right. No. And our attempt to, to do self-improvement in the midst of complexity is an attempt to be in control Yes. And that's the very thing that complexity, uh, you know, spoils. Complexity yeah. is always undermining our, our attempt to control sure. things. Mm. But we can actually to... shift into the self-unfoldment paradigm and learn to navigate complexity. Mm. But I think the big thing about complexity is you've got to let things emerge. And this is essentially what unfolding is for me. I mean, that's wisdom, right. wisdom is a word I'd never really applied to myself um, until I started stepping back, ironically, and just slowing down a little bit and thinking. and but consciously and intentionally letting things unfold because I think what you were describing before is what I call the intention action gap so Mm. you've got all these great intentions and then you get there and either your actions are misconstrued or they're not how you wanted them to be or you're fitting into something where your actions are therefore not 
translating into what your intention was. And for me, this is where the idea of depth is very important. And I've learned so much from that. I work a lot in the inclusion space. And I think you can have a really different dialogue quite quickly if you understand the fluidity of depth. And I would love it if you could just walk our listeners through depth and how it's woven into the Aletheia model, because it makes it yeah, accessible, I, although it's quite a complex process. Yeah, I, let me talk about the, the, the model of depth that we use. And then I'm actually really, I'd love to hear when you're applying this in, in the diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. space, like, like, how do you see having this depth model as helpful? What, how does it change conversations? I'd love to hear that from yeah. you. So when I was telling the story earlier about how this all unfolded for me, I said that I'd learned all these different methods and I realized that they all work at different depths. Mm. And, and very quickly after I had that insight, there was a, a kind of further deeper insight about there basically being four depths. Now, could there be five? Could there be seven? Could there be three? Yeah, of course mm. there can be. So this there's this is somewhat arbitrary, but as I've worked with this over the last you know more or less ten years, it has settled into a you know a, it's a it's rich enough but simple enough at the yeah. same time. So yeah. there's an economy to this, and essentially what depth is the idea is that when you move from being distracted and caught up in things in the world, and you mm-hmm. come into be centered and to be present with yourself, to really be here in the moment, that you can actually be here at different levels of depth. And if you know, if if you or any of your, your audience have ever done a meditation practice, mm. you've probably experienced this. Like at first, when you try to meditate, it's really challenging. And if mm. you stick with the practice, you'll find that over time you feel the quality of your meditation improving because you feel like you have more depth. There's more a sense of coming into the practice and sinking in, Mm. right? So the four depths that we work with, if I start at the shallowest end, you know, the most surface depth, in Mm. other words, Mm. is something I call the depth of parts. This is a depth in which we see everything as being separate. So Mm. look at the world, there's separate things, but we also peer inwardly and we see separation. In other words, we see a kind of fragmented self. Yeah. This is when we're living at this step, that's the fertile territory for that sense of not enoughness. Yeah. Because anytime we're relating to ourselves, it's always in this partial view. And from an inside this partial view, it literally does feel like we're not enough. Mm. And so when I encounter clients who feel that sense of not enoughness, what that says to me is that. Actually, what's called for is deepening self-contact through the depths, because I know if I can help them to do that, they'll actually have the experience directly of, of their sufficiency, of their enoughness, mm. right? Mm. It's so I, I mean, I can tell them they're whole and complete. Yeah, of course. I can tell them they're a whole mm. human being, but if you're experiencing yourself at a shallow depth, at this depth of mm. parts, it, it's unbelievable because it actually literally feels like it's not true. Yeah, it's the stories we tell ourselves, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So in the Aletheia method, we practice something called parts work. And Mm. and this is just simply a way of working with the many parts that we have in such a way that those parts feel seen and understood, loved and valued exactly the way they are. Mm. When that happens, we actually drop spontaneously in depth. And the next one down is called the depth of process. Mm. And this is a depth where when we're here, we're experiencing 
a kind of fluid flow of felt experience. This is a more embodied depth. We feel, mm. feel things in our body. And what we're really feeling is we're feeling relatedness. So the field of relationship that exists between us and within us is something that's bodily felt. Mm. And whenever I'm working with, with managers or leaders who, you know, they're essentially their job is very deeply relational. Yeah. That actually being able to drop into this depth of, of process and feel what's happening between us is extraordinarily helpful. And I would even argue necessary for being a high-performing leader Yeah, because you really need to, to have this kind of relational intelligence to be able to understand what's happening here, mm. to, to navigate the complexity of human relationships. Yeah. And it has and to be so, intentional, doesn't it? It has to be an intentional, I'm dropping down to really understand where, you, where you're coming from and where you're at. That's right. Yeah, mm. you, you know, to really have a powerful conversation mm. with someone, whether you're a coach or a therapist or a leader or a manager or a, or, a, or a partner or a parent, you have to be present with that person. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the ways to understand what that means is it actually means dropping in to the present moment into a felt sense of what's happening between us. Mm. And it turns out that as we as we drop into this field of relatedness, if we continue to follow this flow of feeling, that actually it's naturally taking us even deeper. Mm. And it, there, there'll be a spontaneous deepening into the next depth down, which I call the depth of presence. And this is a depth in which we do feel very deeply present. Mm. And this the, the most notable thing about experiencing life at this step is that we feel a sense of an innate completeness or wholeness. Like we, this is the depth at which you land into feeling like, okay, I'm a whole human being. And no matter what is happening in life, I am equal to this, meaning that it's not too big for me and I'm not too big for it, that I have what it takes to meet this moment exactly as it is. And whether it's easy, an easy moment to be in mm. or a very challenging moment, I have what it takes to navigate through this. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's always going to feel great. Doesn't mean you're yeah. always going to like it, mm. but fundamentally you can get through it because you're already a whole human being. And, and in getting through the ordeals of life and the complexity of life, actually we feel initiated in a way because mm. getting through that reminds us on the other side of it, that we do have what it takes. And usually what it takes is it takes either love or compassion or perseverance mm. or inner strength or, you know, or, or some sense of will, or there's some quality of being that, or virtue, sometimes these are called virtues. Mm. You know, we have the humility, for example, we have the patience, we have some kind of human virtue that actually allowed us to navigate and get through this mm. and to address the things we care about in life. This is that depth of humanity. This is where the poetry is, is in discovering that we actually do have the love that, it, mm. that this takes. We do have the perseverance that this takes, right? In that, we find the poetry of being human. And so that is always here. This depth is always here in every moment. Mm. But very often we're we're living on the surface of life mm. with attention scattered in a million directions, trying to do too much, 
right? Yeah. And in the and a lot of what we're trying to do is to overcompensate for the fact that we don't feel like we're enough. Yeah, which means that you don't create the conditions for those conversations to be had. And if I take it to the organizational level, for the for those decisions to be made via group wisdom, if you like, because yeah. the conditions aren't created for people to actually drop into the depth of explaining who they are, how they feel and what they think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so much becomes possible when we, when we can actually drop in depth and mm. it opens up different ways of relating, different ways of being in groups. Mm. In fact, inside of the Aletheia work, we have an entire approach to group unfoldment mm. and, and it's intimately tied in with group leadership. So the, the job of the job of leaders is to mm. help to develop the group, right? And the leader can't do the development of the group, but the leader can create conditions. Of course. Mm. And that's all that we're trying to do is ever mm. create conditions in which something that naturally wants to unfold and develop has the capacity to do that. The fourth depth down, just for the sake of completeness, is a very spiritual depth. Mm. And and when we hang in the depth of, of presence long enough, there are opportunities and moments in which we'll drop into an even more profoundly deep depth. And I call this the depth of non-duality. Now, it's a word that probably doesn't show up in the business context very yeah. often, <laughs> but essentially it means non-separation. So this is, you know, this is a depth in which we, we land into a sense of our shared humanity you know, in, in a, in a deeper and more spiritually profound way. Mm. And mm. to be honest with you, my work doesn't always land in that depth. There's a mm. lot of utility, even just working at the, at the, the surface, oh, massively. <laughs> yeah. right. Just to relax those defenses and those parts that are triggered so that we can land more into relationship with each other. Mm. This is one of the things I, I like is that this full range of depth is here and available, and we have methodology for each parts work, process work, presence mm. work, and non-dual work. And in fact, we'll find uh, clients will be bouncing up and down between these depths, even in a single conversation, mm. right? Mm. But, but clients can get so much out of this, even with the first few moves that we make in the method at the, at the surface, that one doesn't have to go the whole way to the deepest depth to to get something out of it. In fact, there's no real sense that deeper is necessarily better. These are just these are just depths that are here. They're already mm. here and mm. to be able to consciously embody and have access to our depth just allows us to embody our resourcefulness and mm. and to bring forth our love and our compassion, mm. our courage and our perseverance and the kinds of things that life is calling for. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah. the poetry of humanness. Mm. And I like that, the poetry of humanness. And that is the link for me to bridge it back to your question around practitioning diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Um, and practitioning diversity and inclusion, a little like having powerful conversations, is not just for diversity and inclusion practitioners, just like having powerful conversations is not just for coaches. So as you said, you know, you, you don't have to go very deep into the depth work to have a powerful conversation and quite an impactful result. And if I take um, the four building blocks for me of, a, of building an inclusive environment, you're looking at empathy or relatedness. I like the idea of, you know, the, the relatedness, the human connection, you take psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And only when you've created the conditions for people to actually show up as they are whole, let's put it that way, can you then create co-responsibility and collective vision. So, so that's, mm-hmm. that's the inclusion space. And I think 
you know, when you start looking at things like understanding difference and microaggressions and, you know, the different systems of thinking that cause stereotypes and then prejudice and then discrimination, be it positive or negative, within workplaces and living, you know, sharing lived experiences. Why do we share lived experiences so that you can understand relationally where the other person is coming from on a human level and therefore creating a space where everybody's voice can be heard? And I know that sounds um, quite uh, slogany and people think, oh, you're naive, but it's not naive. You can create conditions and, and use the understanding of all the different parts of me and how they show up yeah. and therefore where I'm going to get triggered <laughs> and therefore how I create space for somebody else to, to put to put their triggers in there. And I think that can be incredibly powerful in the inclusion space. And for me is how you create sustainable culture change because, you know, collaboration, agile, all these words, it's an inclusive environment that, that we're creating and, yeah. and it's based on compassion, Steve. And that's where I, your work mm-hmm. for me has been very powerful uh, very quickly, which I think is suited to organizations who are still working at a very different pace and, you know, there's an action bias in there. We need to deliver. We're all very busy. And it's that pressured sort of Western culture paradigm of you've got to improve, you've got to get it done, you know, which Agile lends itself to if it's just the tooling of Agile. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, so that's how I've, since I've been using your work, I've used it a lot and quite quickly started using it in the inclusion, in my work on inclusion, but also my work in culture change. Mm. Just having different conversations and watching people have quite a powerful reaction and they can also have those light bulb moments quite frequently, um, which I think is important for changing the environment, but also for changing their capacity to create the conditions almost like that, just by having a different conversation. So um, I think it really lends itself to understanding what inclusion means for yourself. And Mm. then this you know, as a leader or as a community leader or as a change agent or as an employee in an organization or part of a community. And then how do I use that? How do I use it to create compassion so that people can actually, you know, bring their voices to the table? Because that's the only way we're going to get creativity and innovation at a group level is by, you know, I I always say that if you take an iceberg analogy, group wisdom lies under the waterline. (laughs) So Mm. as, as a leader, your job is to lower that waterline or to make the water clearer with you know all the diverse different types of difference that you can have but inclusion for me is about where we're the same yeah so you know everyone has a need and everybody's parts have a need to feel seen heard loved accepted etc yeah. um, so that's how it links back almost integrally into the inclusion practice for me yeah that's brilliant yeah yeah I see all the points that you're making here mm. and in organizations and teams psychological safety is so important yeah. and you know the you know in, in the Aletheia context, what we've learned about how to create that is that people fundamentally have to feel related to exactly as they are. And yes. when we when we go towards someone, when we relate to someone with a change agenda, mm. you know, even if it's a, a, a well-intended, we you know, we have their best interest at heart, nevertheless, what often happens is that. It's too easy for people to feel misunderstood, not seen, and ultimately not really appreciated and valued, and and I would even add love uh, in a certain kind of way, for who they are. Mm. And of course, that that blends in with the fact or that most of us also have that relationship with ourselves, that we struggle to be able to value ourselves and, and love ourselves as we are. And so 
that all creates an atmosphere in which it doesn't feel psychologically safe to take risks or to express mm. yourself, to, to, to really say, here's my perspective. Here's how I'm orienting to this, or here's what I'm feeling in this. Mm. Doesn't feel safe to do that. And people feel this pressure to somehow not be who they are, but to be a better version of who they are, which sucks them back into this, yeah. uh, this, this improvement paradigm, which as I've described, has a lot of different issues and although well-intended doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, you know, when we work with, with clients, when I work with clients, I'm really helping them to, first of all, I'm relating to them in a different way. So that different mm-hmm. conversation, right. Yeah. But I'm also helping them to relate to themselves in a different way. Mm-hmm. And in which, in which the parts of them feel seen and understood, loved and valued exactly the way they are. And what we find very paradoxically is although we're not trying to change anything, that once that happens, once they feel seen, that those parts feel seen and understood, loved and valued exactly the way they are, change unfolds naturally. Mm. And mm. The, the change that unfolds is usually the dropping of defenses. Yeah. And it's the defenses that are mostly in the way of productive conversations and teamwork and you know, and deeper reflective conversations that can build culture and unfold different ways of of working together and living together. Mm-hmm. So if we if we have these ways of making things psychologically safe, our defenses can relax and a whole new possibility for relating opens up. And that's a dramatic change, but paradoxically it came from dropping our change agendas. Yeah. And I find, you know, that that is also the gymnastics of constantly managing polarities. So like you mm-hmm. say, you've got, you know, self-development or self-unfoldment. And, you know, we are taught and trained and formatted to figure things out in university commerce cognitively. And, you know, we spend a lot of our lives doing that and a lot of our working lives figuring stuff out and listening to reply or fix or find a solution or not necessarily going to a depth where you can even actively listen. So, you know, what would your thoughts be around how as leaders we can create and hold that space for all parts or all voices to start being heard? Well, I think the most important thing to start with is to recognize that all parts have a positive intention. Mm. And yes, people may be acting and behaving in ways that are, that are generating negative outcomes. Mm. They're not doing that because their intention is to generate negative outcomes. And so when you're working with someone, the first thing is to, is to begin to understand what is the positive intention that they have? How are they how are they trying to help? How are they trying to protect the organization from feeling hurt in, in some way? How are they trying to protect themselves? How are they mm. trying to protect the, their team? Very often, the, the positive intention is one of, one of being protective. And we naturally want to protect that which we identify with. So mm. ourselves, our teams, our family, our organization, you know, and, and yet very often, that good intention isn't backed up with behavior that works, right? Mm. That, that fulfills that intention. Mm. And so that we see lots of examples of people sort of uh, acting with good intention, although that action actually at the same time, unbeknownst to them in the moment is sabotaging them, mm. right? So mm. someone might say, I want to feel a greater sense of my autonomy at this company. 
and they start to push people away. They start to say, well, no, I, I want to do this. It's, you know, mm. I'm, it's, I want to be seen as a leader in this organization. I want to be seen as it is one who's carrying the vision or creating the vision. And they start to push people away to assert that autonomy. Well, after a while, they're going to start to look around and realize nobody's supporting them. Yeah. Right. And they're like, well, hang on. Where, where's the team? Where is everybody? Well, you know, I've pushed them away. Mm-hmm. And so, so that attempt to try to, to be autonomous and to step forward is well-intended, but the manner in which it's done actually winds up sabotaging the effort in the, in the long run. And we see examples like this all the time. Mm-hmm. So we can actually learn to, uh, to work with those parts and to acknowledge that good intention, mm-hmm. to let those parts of us that are trying to do that feel seen and understood, loved and valued exactly the way they are. And when that happens, they relax. Right. And as they relax, we drop in depth and we move into a more relational way of working in general, in which there can be a more fluid flow between feeling autonomous and coming up with an idea, but also then collaborating and relating to people. So we actually drop into a different way of inhabiting life and, mm-hmm. and relating to people that actually winds up being more high-performing. The simple way to look at this is that when we're when we're scared, we get defensive. When we're defensive, we don't perform very well. You know, professional athletes know this very well. They're mm. constantly trying to relax. Mm. They know that when they can relax, that their bodies perform at a higher level. Mm. But the same is true for any of us in any roles or jobs that we have, that when we're tense and tight and defended and we have change agendas and we're trying to wrestle control of, of outcomes. It's well intended, but it often we are often sabotaging our own effort. Mm. And how yeah. can we create developmental practice for that to be assimilated? Because understanding it is one thing, as we know, but assimilating mm. it as a way of being, as a practice that you have. And here I'm at an individual level, Steve. Yeah. You know, how, how can we go about creating that developmental practice? Because meditation is one thing, but if it doesn't work for you, mm. what else can we do? Well, one thing that, you know, I would invite everybody to just try this, create for yourself a goal for the week, you know, something that you, something that you'd like to accomplish, you know, set yourself this goal on Monday, you'd like to accomplish it by Friday. And then every day, just reflect on, you know, what seems to be getting in the way inside of you? You know, are there hesitations or fears or are you trying something? Are you, are parts of you getting activated to try to control or to, to make it happen, just what's happening inside of you. Mm. And then shift into the view that, that all of that activity and those feelings are coming from parts. So there's a part of me that's afraid. There's a part of me that doesn't want to take a risk. There's a part of me that is trying to control this, mm. right? And start to just recognize and just say, there's a part of me, right? And that honors something that's true. There is something in you. But what, it, what you're saying in that m- same breath is that there's more to me mm. than just this part. And just notice what it feels like to honor, there's a part of me trying to control this right now. Mm. There's a part of me that's scared to take the risk right now, right? Just notice how it feels to acknowledge that and to notice there's more of you. Mm. That's that step. The next step is if you can just imagine that part being here as if it's a, if it's a person inside of you, 
And just imagine yourself turning to that part and just saying, thank you for trying. Thank you for how you're trying to help me. And just notice when you actually appreciate that part for its good intention. And just notice how it feels in your body. Notice what happens and unfolds. My prediction is that when you do that, first, when you say a part of me, is you'll start to notice a sense of spaciousness. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, there's a part of me that is trying to control this. And I'm more than that. That's going to start to feel a little bit more space in your life. Mm -hmm. And then when you turn to that part and say, thank you, I know you're really trying to help me. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate you for that. What you'll probably notice is that part will start to soften and relax and or shine. You know, Mm -hmm. if you've ever, if you've ever been around a little kid, And maybe, you know, they, I I had my, my uh, nephew and niece over a couple weeks ago, they disappeared into the dining room and they were drawing things and, you know, with crayons and everything. And at the end of the evening, they presented my wife and I, they said, here, we made this for you. Right. And this, they, it's like, they want to feel seen. Mm -hmm. They want to feel understood. They want to feel loved and valued. And so, of course, we celebrated. We're like, wow, this is amazing. You know, this is so great. And we took the picture and we posted it on the refrigerator with the magnet. And so we valued it. We appreciated it. We loved them for it. And they were relaxed and they were shining. Mm. Right. So this is what happens when we feel seen, something in us relaxes and we shine. Mm. And I'm right? sure there are our listeners thinking, that sounds great, but I don't have the time to do that. I don't have the time in my busy working day to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like for, for people who are in that position that you have parts that are really trying to work hard. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That, and now I'm speaking directly to you, to, to the listeners here. <laughs> you have parts that are really, really, really trying to do it. Trying to take care of everything, trying to be the super mom or the super dad, or trying to be the best leader, you know, trying to deal with the emergencies, the Mm. the crises that you're having and just notice how hard your parts are working right now. Right. Mm. And what if you just took a moment right in this moment and just inwardly turned towards them and just said, thank you. Right. Mm. And just notice the effect, just notice the effect that it has when you actually acknowledge those parts and they feel seen and understood for all their hard work, for all of their, their good intentions. And I predict what you'll, what you'll notice is that suddenly something just let go. Something mm. just relaxed. There's a tension, maybe a tension that you didn't even know was tense. Mm. Suddenly just opened. So the, the point here is that, is that we can start to learn to, to, to open this and to unfold. And it doesn't have to take a long time. Mm right? It's literally little micro practices. In fact, that's exactly what we work with in Aletheia coaching Mm. is giving clients little micro practices that are then supported by and reinforced by the coaching conversations. Mm. In Mm. fact, the coaching conversations often give rise to the micro practices. We work with something. And at the end, we say, just, if you could just do this little thing, right? Like set a watch alarm and just, you know, when it goes off, just take 10 seconds, 15 seconds, you know, turn to this part, the part we worked with, say this to it, Mm. et cetera. Right. So Mm. this begins to move 
to move the momentum in a different direction. And that's what Mm -hmm. you have to do Mm -hmm. is all the momentum is moving in this direction of life is overwhelming and life is busy and I can't do everything and I'm not enough. And I, I need improvement, but I don't even have time for improvement. And if I try to do it, I falter. I'm not disciplined enough. And Mm -hmm. we land into all this, right. Beating themselves up for it. (laughs) Exactly. We beat ourselves up all the time for this. Right. Mm. So how do we just start to slow that, that momentum down and slowly begin to generate momentum in a different direction. Mm. One that's more life affirming one that actually in the end will actually just like it does for athletes lead to higher performance. Yeah. Right. But it also not, you know, the higher performance is always like, it's like the cherry on the Sunday, you know, Mm. actually what it leads to is it leads to more relaxation, more fulfilling relationships, more sense of, of engagement, more Mm. a sense of, purpose and meaning, you know, a lot of the things that people are actually looking for are available right here, right now. If mm-hmm. we can attune out of this technological attunement into the yeah. poetic attunement and then drop into depth, it's right here. And yeah. when we learn to do that, it creates an entirely different foundation for living and working. And it creates the spaciousness you were talking about before, doesn't it? Um, And I I think that's what makes it so accessible is these micro practices that are sort of tailored to the way you're currently living your life, which for most of us is busy in and out, you know, but taking five minutes or 10 minutes at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day, whatever you decide, I think can be really um, life changing almost because like you say, and what you're talking about for me is, and where it took me is self-acceptance. You get to a place where it's, self-acceptance which becomes self-compassion and then you're opening a whole new spaciousness aren't you in terms of who you are how you show up not only at work but but just in your life in general that's right that's right and and what's what's surprising for people who have never really deepened into self-acceptance is that self-acceptance is actually the most powerful way to transform yourself which is again a kind of ironic paradox Mm. many Mm. people mistakenly think that self-acceptance is the acceptance of some state of deficiency like well i just have to accept this is how things are yeah right and yet actually it's completely the opposite it's 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 shifting how you relate to yourself yeah and it's in that new relationship that an entirely different way of working with yourself and and really relating to life Mm. and living life becomes possible mm. and that's a dramatic change yeah it's huge yeah right it's yeah. It, it's huge it's profound and and i'm so glad that you kind of brought us to this point of of recognizing which i have again and again in my work that that it's about how we occupy the present moment in these small ways mm. that can be peppered through the entire day yeah you know, these small micro practices and yes, we're going to forget about them. Yes, we're going to get sucked into some big project. And they're always there to return to. Mm. And they can be they can be practiced in a way that seemingly can be inserted into the busiest of lives. Yeah. So you're right. nudging your own system. We talk right. about nudging the organizational system, of course, and I believe in that. But it's got to start with nudging your own system for me. Right. And there's good science to back this up. I yeah. mean, you can understand... I don't know if we have time to unpack all this, but you can understand the the mechanism that we're working with here in in terms of polyvagal theory, in terms mm. of in terms of neuroscience, and and just how our neurology actually neuroplastically shifts as a result 
these kinds of practices and working with depth. So there's good grounded science here and we're leveraging that in the midst of this real paradigm shift. Mm. And, and it's that that I think is most called for in these times. Absolutely. Right. I think mm. that a lot of coaching is still, is still being done inside the self-improvement paradigm where there is an assessment and a closing the gap well-intended, but often with mixed results mm. and very often landing us back into this place of feeling not enough. Mm. And that's, you know, what I'm trying to do with Aletheia is to bring a breath of fresh air, like a, a, a different, a different conversation about, about human development and about coaching and about uh, leadership and, mm. and, uh, and whatnot. Yeah, this is what's energizing and inspiring me right now. Well, it's definitely that, and it is very inspiring, but it's also very operation, operational and very yeah. powerful. I mean, you can see the difference pretty quickly, which brings me to my last question around how do you think this can change the conversation, therefore? We've talked about individual nudging, but how can it change the conversation around leadership and transformation in, in general in organizations? And I know that's a huge question. Steve. Yeah, it, it, it's a big question, and and I have a whole class on on leadership and leadership mm. coaching that is is unpacking and working working with this in this unfolding paradigm. Mm. But, so there, there's quite a lot to say here, but you know, I think in general, if I look at these four depths, mm. mostly where organizations and where leaders are focused is on the depth of parts, which in the organizational context shows up as a focus on getting tasks done. Yeah. That's that's the manifestation mm. of that organizationally in a, in a team context. And very often what's being missed in that view is attending to the depth of the team, the depth of the organization in terms of what's happening at the process level mm. and what's happening at the presence level. Mm. And so when leaders begin to understand more of what's happening there, they can begin to balance what's happening in the unfolding process of the team and help that team actually to develop more cohesively and to, to learn how to integrate differences. In fact, that's a lot of what group process work is about is differences are naturally going to emerge inside of groups. And the big question is, how are those differences integrated or not integrated? And if yeah. they're not integrated, the group will 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 move towards splitting, mm. and splitting in its most extreme form becomes scapegoating. Yes, and okay. we see that teams. I see this all the time in my organizational work, where teams that are reporting into a single manager, everyone thinks that they're a team, but in fact, when you start to talk to them, they are internally split. Yeah, because differences have emerged within the team that have not been integrated. And so when leaders understand how to integrate those differences in real time on the fly as they're actually being brought forth, the team conversation becomes enriched and people mm. feel safe to, to bring differences yeah. that enables innovation and creativity and, and a lot of things. So mm. the whole unfolding paradigm, when, really, when you really begin to settle it into or the organizational and leadership context, really is a, is a, is a game changer there as well. And it addresses some of the, the thorny issues that make organizational life really difficult. Mm. Um, and, and frankly, a source of suffering for a lot of people. Absolutely. And, like and this, organizations yeah. are well known for being dysfunctional. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and causing a lot of suffering. Right. And causing a lot of suffering. And so 
when you really start to, to look at the whole unfolding paradigm in the organizational context, I believe in my experience so far that it's, it really opens up the possibility of having healthy teams, yes. healthy conversations. And it, you know, to your point about diversity and, and inclusion, it's very much centered on the, the team's capacity to integrate differences as they emerge because they inevitably will. Yeah. Right. But it's also about their, for me, their capacity to see them, to value them, to understand them, and then to put them back into their system, if you like. And that's why, for me, the whole unfolding um, paradigm is really the basis for creating an inclusive environment, either individually, right. me with my team, or me as the head of a department, or, you know, me as a community head. You know, it's this whole point of if you don't create that space and that spaciousness, yeah. I, do, I don't think, and I've been thinking about it a lot since I've been following the unfolding paradigm and experiencing and experimenting with it. I don't think you can get what you need for an organization, innovation, creativity, which essentially comes from my definition of inclusion, which is letting things unfold and valuing them as they come up, but integrating yeah. them back into the system. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And mm-hmm. the last thing I'll say here is just, a lot of times people look at when we start talking about unfolding and they, they feel like that we're contrasting that with trying to have a change agenda and to be in control. And the, the most common mistaken understanding that I've run across is that people think that unfolding is by contrast, like taking your hands off the steering wheel, mm. <laughs> right? If controlling is having your mm. hands on the steering wheel, then unfolding must be going like this. And it's true that we let go of that kind of control, but it's not like anything no. goes, it's no. not, it's not like, well, let's just see what happens. Mm. That is actually a form of disengagement. Yes. And so what I would actually say that trying to control things is a form of disengagement, but it, it commits a different error. Mm. It, we block out what's happening. We block out complexity because we can't deal with it. And the reason why trying to control often fails is that, is that our efforts to control get undermined by what we block out. Mm. It's like we don't even we're not seeing this. Well, that's one form of disconnection. Taking your hands off the wheel is another form of disconnection. Unfolding is the middle ground between the two. Mm. It's actually it actually is a deep way of participating, of engaging, of relating, of working with what's actually here with the complexity and working through that. Mm. Right. Mm. And so mm. that's actually often the surprise that I find when I start to really work in an unfolding way with people. People are surprised at how much engagement it, it requires. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's so it's so it's not a, you know, oh, all right, mm. we're gonna let this unfold. Mm. Not quite like that. Yes, no. there is a way that we let it unfold, but we do so in a deeply participatory way. Yeah. So I wanted to make that final distinction mm. as people are just I imagine many of your listeners might be, you know, just coming into this paradigm and just starting to feel around in it for the first time. And so mm. that's that's a common misunderstanding. And thank you for doing that because it sort of preempts my final question, which would be, you know, what would be your one recommendation or call to action for people who are looking, who are listening, thinking, right, I'm, I'm going to do something with this because it's clearly bringing results and it's things that I feel that I was trying to do anyway. You yeah. know, what would your first port of call be for them? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I could say you could check out the work that we're doing in Aletheia, but you know, we're, we're not we're not alone in this in this in this world, in this paradigm. You know, I think the first thing that I would suggest is before you try to apply this in your organization, work with yourself. Yeah. 
right? Really get some lived experience of, of shifting into this paradigm and just relating to yourself and your and an issue that you have that 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 you really care about. And you know, the earlier experiment that I offered, I think is a good, even yeah. without any training, you can mm. do that experiment. Just begin to notice the effect and start to get curious about this new that well, I say new paradigm, but but really the unfolding paradigm is the original paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the change and transformation that any of us have experienced in our lives has actually unfolded. And only a tiny little bit of the change we've experienced has happened because we we had the discipline and the control to make it happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The thing is, is that in our culture, we assume that nothing will change if we don't change it. And so we assume we have to do it all and mm-hmm. we're trying to do it all. That's part of the issue, right? Yeah. And we're failing to do it all. Mm-hmm. And we keep then coming back and saying that that's because I don't have what it takes. And we get caught in that whole okay, story. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the whole idea here is to notice that there's another way that change happens mm-hmm. naturally. It, you can see it in nature. You can see it everywhere. And that is this more emergent style of change or this unfolding style of change. And we have to start to open to that and to, to recognize how to create the conditions for that. Mm. Right. Mm. Right. If you can create the conditions for unfoldment, unfoldment will happen naturally and spontaneously, Mm. but creating those conditions, that's the point of leverage. That's the thing to learn about. Okay. How do you create that? I'm going to leave our listeners without to let things emerge and <laughs> to just create the conditions for things to unfold naturally. Yeah, yeah. To start to experiment with with your own life, mm. even in the way that I just mm. I just proposed earlier. Mm. I think it's a good starting point. Okay. You know, con- convince yourself by your own experience. Mm. There's something yeah. here. Mm. Yeah. Okay, Steve, thank you. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts and your model and everything with us. Where can people find out more about Aletheia and about you and what you do? So they can visit our website, integralunfoldment.com. Okay. And, or you can go to aletheiacoaching.com. I imagine you could pr- provide a link or something like that. In I will do in the show notes, the, yeah. The show okay. notes, yeah. So, yeah, we offer coach training classes and we're beginning to offer classes in parenting and and self-development and a variety of things, leadership as well. So all working inside this, this unfolding paradigm. Yeah. Super. In the continuing quest for changing the conversation and changing the dialogue throughout the world, if I've understood correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to share this with your listeners and to, um, and to engage this conversation. I'm very inspired by what you're doing to take this work into the diversity, equity, and inclusion world, because I, I see the connections that you're making. And I think mm. I think they're there, although I don't position my work in that way. Yes. But uh, a deep appreciation for you and what you're doing there. Thank you. And I, I think, you know, bridging this gap between, I call it digital and human, but you can talk, call it technical achievement and poetic achievement. You know, that that's that's where the future of humanity lies. So yeah. Yeah. the more of us doing that work, the better. Yeah. yeah. The world is calling for us to bring all of our humanity. Mm the full depth of it. And that's what's needed. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Steve, thank you very much. I'm going to leave our listeners with that. So go out and check integral unfoldment or aletheia.com and discover the depth work and the different parts of what's going on there. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode and the learning it brought you. And it's bye from me for now. And I'll see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. <laughs>